Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am happy to be joined today by financial expert and three-time author, Emily Guy Birkin, to discuss her latest book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, that was co-authored with friend of the show, uh, Joe Salcihai. So welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. Yes, here we are kicking off the new year. No better way. Uh, then by talking about a book that will help people get their uh, their money behaviors in order. So it has to be said, you know, it has to be said that this is one of the funniest books I've ever read about personal finance, which is admittedly a low bar, but it, 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 really, <laughs> it, really, it really was, it, it really was a funny book. And that's, you know, that's clearly by design. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even read the title and know that this is going to be a little tongue in cheek. So tell me why it was so important for you and Joe to make this a, a funny book. So one of the problems with finance for a lot of people is that um, we treat it like it's life or death. And it, it can be life or death. I mean, there's 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 absolutely good reason for feeling that way. But when you start off with the feeling that money is only slightly less fun than a colonoscopy, you are not going to want to deal with it. You're going to say like, oh, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to do that. And so this is something that I have seen with my other books. I'll have friends who will buy my book saying like, oh, they really want to support me, but they're kind of afraid to read it because they're afraid of what that's going to say about their money uh, habits, or, you know, they're going to find out that they're even further behind than they already think they are. So we want people to kind of lower their defenses and uh, start with the idea of like, this can be enjoyable. This can be fun. I will actually pick this book up and read it because there's fart jokes in it. That's going to be great. (laughs) Whereas if you start off with uh, like, this is very serious and you have to be doing this or else everything is going to be ruined in your life financially, that's going to turn off a lot of people who are the people who specifically need a money book. Yeah. You know, there's also really a a robust body of literature around how humor makes things stick more, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. from an, an adult education perspective, from a behavioral perspective, we know that making something rhyme or making something memorable or making something funny or anecdotal. And there's, there's all of this in your book and fart jokes. And so, you know, I think, I think all of these things really make it stick. So I I do believe that there is a method to your madness. You were Mm -hmm. saying that one reviewer was upset because it was funny. So we should Mm -hmm. say at the outset, this is a funny book. So if you don't like your personal finance education with a, with a side of humor, this isn't for you. So you and Joe begin the book quite provocatively uh, with what you call your one magical idea to rule them all. So uh, do tell, what is this one magical (laughs) idea to, to rule them all? 
this uh, this idea is something that's based on what you'll see in a lot of money books, which is you start with, uh, the authors will tell you, start by setting your goals. And uh, there's, a, I mean, there's good reason for that. You know, if you have a sense of where it is you want to go, um, that's how you can figure out how to get there. The problem with um, starting by setting your goals is that you are not really contextualizing it in time. So if you say like, okay, I want to retire someday, that doesn't really give you any kind of steps to take to get there. That doesn't give you any sense of where you are now and how you'll get there. If you say, I want to pay for juniors college education, that does not give you a sense of what you need to do in order to make sure you have enough set aside. So what Joe and I have done is we talk about timelining your goals. And so um, we mean that very, very literally, you know, you get a piece of paper, you draw a little stick figure of yourself on the left-hand side. And that's because drawing is always more fun than not drawing. And then you draw a line and uh, that represents the rest of your life. And then you put parts on the line of where you want to be at certain places. So you want to retire at 58. Okay. So you'll put that on there. You want to pay for your kid's college education. Now there's a couple of really good things about that. For one thing, it forces you to start thinking about like, okay, where am I now financially? How do I need to get to paying for college uh, to retirement at 58? But it also helps you see if any of your goals intersect. So, you know, I want to retire at 58. Oh, whoa, that's when my son will be in his third year of college. Can we do both of those things? Do I need to push it off until I'm 60 to make sure that those those goals don't overlap in a way that it makes it impossible to do one or the other? And so that is something that it makes it a more dynamic exercise than just saying, write down your goals. Now that's a great start, but you really need to do more than just write them down. You need to do more than just know what your goals are. You need to know when they are. You need to know what you need to do to get there. And that's why timelining is so powerful. This is heavily influenced by a book that I, I just finished. And the book is by Luke Burgess. And it's it's all about mimetic desire and, and why we want the things that we want. Uh, and he makes a really, it's its an excellent book, and he makes a really compelling case in the book that so much of what we profess to want is socially mediated. Uh, and he draws on the ideas of Girard and others to, to show that a lot of times the things that we profess to want, we want because other people want them. And there's this sort of social contagion in this. But it also leads to these sort of what he calls thin desires or goals that don't really sort of sate our thirst for accomplishment and and connection. How can we tell whether or not one of our goals, because I think your your magical rule to to rule them all is, is a very sound one and a great place to start. But when I talk to most people about their financial goals, I think they sort of, you know, it feels kind of inherited sometimes or, or sort of socially mediated not like this burning desire. It's like, oh, you know, I don't know, like I, I want to play golf and, you know, have time with my grandkids, which which may both be true. But do we ever need to do a little more digging to make sure our goals are personal and authentic enough that they give us sort of the rocket fuel we need to, to do the hard blocking and tackling of, of saving and investing money? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I really think having 
the goals that are like come from within, you are going to be so much more motivated than the goals that are just kind of like, okay, well, you know, I should try to get make partner because that's what's expected. And I should, you know, I should plan on retiring because that's what's expected or, or things like that. And of course we don't think of it that way. We don't think like, oh, I'm doing this because everyone expects me to. We, we don't think that way. We think that this is what we want and determining the difference between them is really about sitting with your goals and like spending time thinking about why you want to do things and what you really want from it. One of my favorite things, you'll see it in like uh, sitcoms pretty often where the people will have two choices and they're like, I don't know how to decide. And so they'll do something like, all right, flip a coin and go with whichever one. And then like, oh, if you're mad that you got the, the one that, <laughs> that came up, then you know what you really want. And so like, it's this very simple in a 22 minute sitcom, like, oh, okay, obviously this is, you know, you deserve to be with that person rather than that person, whatever. But I think that there is something to that. Um, when you start looking at your goals and start thinking like, okay, well, if I couldn't do that, how would I feel? If this were closed off to me, how would I feel? And then you can start to kind of see where, you know, you might feel relieved, where you might start to feel like, well, no, that would really, really upset me if I couldn't do that. And so if you start looking at things in that way, as if like, these are choices that could be closed off to me, which ones are the ones I would regret? Um, which ones are the ones that I really want to go towards, even if I weren't able to because of X, Y, or Z, then that's really going to help you kind of dig down into the goals that are really true to who you are, rather than just something that uh, are conforming with expectations around you. Yeah, I like I like that idea of sort of exploring how it would make you feel the emotional undercurrents. The other thing that I find myself doing with with my wife and my family is we we set our own financial goals is I try and start with values almost. So, you know, I have a value around uh, relationships and connection. I have a value around creativity and personal autonomy. And each one of those sort of meta values flows into goals, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's financial goals that correspond with each of those. And so that makes it a little bit more, a little deeper, a little thicker to use Burgess's term and not, I want a Lambo because my neighbor has a Lambo or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever mm -hmm. the sort of, the sort of cheap goal that, that makes ostensible sense, but isn't really fulfilling or, or values based. So chapter three, I loved because it's, it's become this huge battle in the personal finance community. And for those who don't follow the discourse online, the personal finance community is, is chippier than you might expect. I mean, there is some sort of <laughs> back, back and forth, back and forth in some of these topics. And, and one of these sort of seemingly uh, fraught battles in the, in the personal finance community is around, should you focus on increasing your income or becoming thriftier? So uh, Nick Majuli, friend of the show, former guest and a great blogger, he shared an interesting graph recently that looked at the savings rate by income level and, you know, surprise, surprise, it rises in a stepwise fashion. So as people make more, they save more. People who were making very little were saving very little. And then I think his highest income bracket was like 500 grand plus. And people making that kind of money were saving nearly half of their income. 
So where do you sort of fall down on this continuum or how do you think about this conversation uh, when it comes to do we try and maximize our earning potential or crank up our thrift? So uh, when I was first out of college, uh, I was working at Barnes & Noble. I was making $8.25 an hour and I have always been very frugal. And was, you know, kind of felt like, you know, I'm making very little money, but I I can, I can do big things with it because of my frugality, because of my ability to save, because of my ability to say no to things when um, it wasn't the right time to buy them because I didn't have the money saved, that sort of thing. And uh, it took me a few years to realize, I, I came to this realization slowly that you cannot frugal your way to wealth. So no matter how good I was with money there at the end of the day, making $16,000 a year was not going to allow me to build wealth in any real way. And so that's something that um, I think is, is really important and was something I needed to understand, you know, coming from this sense of frugality, coming from this, also the sense of like, well, I don't want to earn a lot of money because like only really greedy people earn a lot of money. Like I had that kind of mental block and recognizing that if you want to build wealth, if you want to have all of these um, different things in your life uh, that are not necessarily about greed, if you want to be able to give back, if you want to spend time with family, you know, those sorts of things, then you're going to have to have a higher income. There's just no getting around it. Now, once you have the higher income, you need to also be frugal. There is no getting out of the fact that frugality is an important component, but it is one of those things where like you can't start from the idea that frugality is the only key to success when it comes to building wealth, nor can you start from the idea that a higher income is the only key to success. You have to work with them in conjunction and recognize that, you know, if you're spending every cent you earn, no matter how much you make, that is going to um, lead to bad outcomes. And if you are you know, frugally saving every single cent you can, but you're making less than 20,000 a year, that is not going to lead to great outcomes. Although it's better than someone who is not able to do that with under 20,000 a year. So I, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I recently had a friend who got a very significant pay raise at a new job, part of this great resignation. He, he moved on and, and in the process of doing so got a really hefty raise uh, and he called me excited about all the things he was going to buy with the money. And I I sort of encouraged him to act as though it never happened, right? Mm-hmm. To just, hey, look, you you were doing okay before, like, right? You were you were providing for yourself and your family before. Act like it never happened. Don't let lifestyle creep and, and sort of this new reality uh, change the way you spend money. So that I, I felt like a little bit of a wet blanket, but uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Maybe it's in his best interest. So uh, everybody wants to make more money, of course. I mean, I think you're you're spot on that you can't frugal your way to wealth. So what practical tips can you find in the book for, for increasing income, for diversifying income streams? What what can you tell people who who know that they can't frugal themselves to wealth? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that I think is really important to remember is that if you, uh, in most circumstances, um, maybe not in the middle of a global pandemic, um, but uh, in most circumstances, if you ask for a raise, you're likely to get one. And I think what happens is the amount of work you need to put in to um, really make your case for, for a raise 
can feel overwhelming, particularly if you come from the sense of like, I feel like I'm lucky to have a job. I mean, that's, that's something that I feel as if our society has really forced on us as, as workers for a very long time is that, you know, you're lucky to have a job, you know, accept it, accept whatever the the circumstances are. We're starting to see that change with the great resignation. We're starting to see people saying like, you know what? No, I'm not accepting a toxic work environment. I'm not accepting no raises for five years. So, but that, that can be tough to get over if you're worried about it. And so a lot of times people will be like, okay, I'll just get an alternate income stream rather than ask for a raise. Um, because, you know, figuring out how I can help improve the, uh, bottom line for the company, letting my, my boss know what other things that I have already done, um, making sure that it's clear that, uh, you know, things are within market, uh, um, that things are, are, uh, um, concurrent with, uh, what, what I can expect from the market elsewhere. All of those things together uh, sounds like a lot of work, and it is, to go in and ask for that raise. And so a lot of people will be like, it'll be easier for me to just get a side job. And it's not. You know, it's it's all of this work that will get you more money for still doing what you're already doing. And I think that that's something that we need to kind of get over that fear and over that, that concern. Then as for building a diverse income streams, it is something that uh, can feel like just putting more on top of yourself. Um, I don't like the idea that we need to be hustling 24 seven or the idea that like you got to monetize your hobbies that you'll often see because um, of wage stagnation. People are get stuck with like, well, you know, if I don't, you know, also sell my watercolors on Etsy, I'm not going to be able to make rent. However, if you are interested in diversifying your income streams, there are things that you can do that can help you to bring in more money in a way that doesn't exhaust you. If you are focused on kind of creating a side business for yourself and actually thinking of it as a business and recognizing what your boundaries are in terms of making sure that you are not putting more time or money into it than you can afford, and also finding a way to make it something that you find enjoyable and can help uh, deepen your understanding of your main job as well. And so that's a tall order. I mean, this is this is not easy stuff. This is not like, oh, you know, just try this one weird trick and you'll get an extra $30,000 a year. It's nothing like that. But it is something that is very much worthwhile looking into if you are unhappy with your current level of income and would like to make sure that you are covered in case you lose your main job or that you'd like to transition to something else. So, and again, it's... Uh, I think that if you recognize these are kind of the choices, you know, ask for a raise or start looking for a job that can pay you better and or, you know, start some sort of side business that can help you diversify your income that can help you make better decisions about income and about what your job is, what you want to be doing with your life. Yeah, it's it feels like for my whole working life, I've felt lucky to have a job. And in some respects, that's not a, you know, not a bad way to be, but it's like, I came out of grad school, great financial crisis, you know, a couple of years on global pandemic. And it just <laughs> like, it just seems like at every one of these points, you know, I'll, I'll say to my wife, like, look, we've lived through and thrived in two, like really sort of horrifying economic conditions and and we are blessed and we're lucky and and we are lucky to have jobs and yet there is the reality of 7% inflation currently and mm-hmm. if you're not 
you know, if you're not keeping up with that, you're losing purchasing power in real terms. So don't be afraid to ask for what you're worth to make mm-hmm. a, a cogent fact-based case for, for what constitutes fair pay. You can be lucky and still be assertive, right? Like you can yes. feel, you can feel <laughs> fortunate. You can be grateful for your job and still uh, be assertive about asking for what you're worth. So in, in chapter six is the very cleverly titled What to Expect When You're Investing, which took me back to another book that uh, you know, I hope hope to never, hope to never read again. <laughs> to never need to read again. But, um, you know, you talk about various investing vehicles and and what to expect from them. So I'll give the example of of a friend of mine who contacted me recently. I'm sure you get the same thing all the time. You work in the money game. And so people are always coming to you with their questions. And and that's fantastic. I'm, I'm always happy to help. But a friend of mine who works in real estate is he, he sort of has all his chips in real estate. Mm-hmm. He is himself a realtor. He has a number of rental properties. Sort of everything is, you know, everything from his income to his side hustle to everything is sort of stacked on income in his local market. And so he comes to me and says, hey, I'd, I'd like to start basically dollar cost averaging into the stock market. And I say, yes, this is a, this is a great idea. Like, right. This is, this Mm -hmm. is very good. Yes. Let's do it. And so he sort of asks me what sort of returns can I expect and sort of what is, what's, what are some historical max drawdowns? And so, you know, I tell him Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he's like, wait, I could lose 50% of my money. Like, you're like, well, yes. Right. Like, yes, you could. Like there is, there is historical precedent for that, but, you know, trying to explain to him diversification and different things, but that was kind of the part that stuck. And so <laughs> I struggle, I struggle. It wasn't the, it wasn't the 10% per year average over long periods of time. It was the <laughs> possibility of the 50% drawdown. That's very consistent with human psychology. So how do we educate folks without scaring them off? Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's critical for folks to know what to expect when they're investing. Uh, but how can we frame conversations around investing so that we can manage expectations uh, without doing what I did, which is scaring people out of the game? perhaps? <laughs> so I think one of the things that's um, really important is to start with what prompted the question. So you see people going like, "Ooh, NFTs are hot. How do I get in on that is going to, you know, getting that question from someone is going to lead to a much different discussion than someone saying like, I need to figure out how to save for retirement. And so that's part of, of, uh, where that kind of education I think can come from is, you know, if someone's coming to you like NFTs, Bitcoin, all of that, that's where like, let's, you know, scare straight, you know, that sort of thing where it's just like, okay, need to understand, you know, this is, uh, um, this is something that's hot right now here, here are the ways that, um, that, uh, lost the fact that, uh, there is no historical data on NFTs because they're relatively new, all of that. That is is really important when it comes to someone saying like, okay, I need to diversify because everything I have is in real estate and local real estate at that. I think it can be really helpful to kind of do like kind of a stepping stone. Uh, When I was a teacher, we talked about something called the known new phenomenon, which is when you're teaching someone, it's really helpful to start with something they know and then add something new. So with that, so for, for your friend who, who understands um, real estate really well, um, starting with like, 
uh, REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, as like, okay, you understand real estate. So let's start with REITs as a, a method of investing. And, you know, start with that, like, because you understand what's going on with that. Here's how REITs work. Here's what you can do with them. And then here's how they could be a part of a mutual fund or an ETF. And then from there, if you've got, you know, something in that, you feel confident with that. Let's talk about diversifying within that. You know, what can you pair with a REIT? How can you uh, reach your goals and diversify starting with something you know, and then kind of branching out? And then as you know more stuff, you can branch out even more. And then that way it becomes kind of like, um, uh, I'm just thinking of like a, a, a growth pattern where you start with a, like a nucleus of something that you understand well, and then keep going further and further out as you understand each new thing that you add very well. And so that's um, because, as I'm sure you know, we tend to be very binary thinkers. We think, you know, like gain or loss, we think up or down, you know, gangbusters are failing. And so starting with something that is very familiar to whoever it is you're talking to can be really, really helpful in saying like, cause I'm sure he is very cognizant of the possibility for loss in real estate. Um, and because he's lived through it, he, he lives and breathes it daily. That's something that he's very comfortable with. Um, and so like just adding a little bit of discomfort as you go. And as he's learning all of these new types of investments, that's going to make a, a lot better and easier transition for him than just like, all right, you know, just jump right into the stock market, <laughs> go in the, go in the deep end, the water's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that known new rubric for thinking about these things and, and using the the chassis of something they're already familiar with to, mm-hmm. to be a vehicle to, to introduce something they're unfamiliar with. And, you know, to your point about these more speculative assets, I think that most people approach conversations about investing with sort of a high level, either risk first or reward first mentality, right? Like if you're talking about something super speculative, I had another friend email or text me the other day and say, hey, my Uber driver today, it was his last day driving Uber. He's quitting and getting into trading NFTs full time. Like, how can I get started? And I'm like, okay, (laughs) wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, okay. Like, Like, you know, no diss on NFTs. I think there's some interesting things happen there, but, you know, you, you have to understand she, she was having a reward first. How can Mm -hmm. I quit my job, make $10,000 a day, like this individual purported to be doing. Uh, And you have to say, okay, let's, let's flesh out the other side. And for someone who is sort of a risk first investor, like my, my real estate friend who was, was only looking at downside, you have to help them understand the upside. So use what they know to bridge to something to to bridge to something new and then determine are they risk first or reward first mm-hmm. and how can you make that that picture more comprehensive. So uh, Emily my my favorite chapter was chapter 10 of course this was the the psychology chapter. Uh, this talks about money scripts use some ideas from from Brad Klontz and others. Tell us what a money script is. And how is understanding our own personal narrative or script around money psychology so important to getting started? 
Uh, sure. So money script is um, an unconscious belief about money that is often formed in childhood. Money is not the only thing we build scripts about. You know, we will we'll have scripts about any number of things. And if you talk to kids, you'll hear them say really funny stuff that uh, because like they've they've formed these ideas. Uh, so, for instance, my mother, when she was a little girl, she thought doctors weren't allowed to get sick. And if they did, they'd go to jail. <laughs> um, and so because we talk about doctors and we we talk about illness and we talk about jails. That was, she, she learned that that was not true. The thing with money scripts is that they can remain in place even when they are, I, I don't want to say objectively false, but are, are only true a little bit. So there's only a germ of truth to them. We'll hold on to them because uh, as a society, we don't talk about money that much. And so we don't have as much of a chance to challenge these scripts. So uh, for instance, one of my money scripts was the fact that the idea that um only people who are greedy or materialistic want really high incomes. Uh, and that's something that I had to kind of overcome in myself uh, early on in, in my life. I, I also have a script that uh, I, I don't deserve any money that I didn't personally earn. So being gifted something uh, valuable made me very uncomfortable. The idea of inheriting money made me very uncomfortable. And so understanding these scripts, um, and all of these are, are avoidance scripts. These are um, people who have scripts like mine tend to want to avoid money. They uh, can cause you to have disordered, disordered money behavior. I, I prefer to call it that rather than bad money decisions because the money behavior is fulfilling some sort of emotional need when you make a, a, a disordered choice, but it is not necessarily the best choice for your finances. So understanding what script you have, whether it's avoidance, like what I had, uh, vigilance, which is another one that I have, which is the, the idea that you need to pay close attention to your money. Um, it's important to understand where your money's going and that you need to track and all of those things. Status, which is where you um, believe that what you own represents who you are um, and worship where you believe that um, uh, money is going to give you more happiness. Having more money leads to more happiness. So depending on which money scripts you have, and they tend to overlap, you tend to have more than one at a time you're going to have a different reaction to any number of things. You're going to have a different reaction to getting a raise. You're going to have a different reaction to a market downturn, um, different reaction to um, uh, inheriting money, any of those things. And so knowing what your reactions um, are coming from, like knowing why you're having this reaction can help you to make better money decisions. Because if your immediate reaction is like, oh, no, 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 I have to give that all to charity. Like that, that's something that I would think I can say, wait, that's a lovely, noble idea. Does that really represent what I, my values, my goals, my dreams, my hopes? If your immediate reaction is like, great, I can, you know, buy a huge house. You can stop and say like, well, is that really what I want? Do I want everything that comes along with having a big house? So understanding this about yourself gives you the, 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 space to pause whenever there is a money issue that comes up and start to think about it and think about why you're reacting the way you are. And if it really represents something that's going to make you feel good once all said and done. So uh, as a, as a psychologist in training, one of the things that we had to do that I thought was very worthwhile was we had to go to therapy ourselves throughout the, you know, the entirety of my, of my grad school experience and one of my therapists had this line 
Uh, and it was basically, how's that working for you? You know, so I would come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm doing a ABC thing. And he would say, okay, well, how's that working for you? You know, hey, I'm worrying about this. And like, how's that working for you? Mm-hmm. And it sounds kind of, uh, sounds kind of flippant, which maybe it was, but, you know, one of the things that he was trying to drive home was that there is no sort of objectively rational, irrational, good or bad decision about money or, or perhaps anything else. It's it's more about how adaptive is it for you and your goals and your circumstances. So you start with your magical rule to rule them all. You lay out your values and your goals, and then you look at these behaviors. Now, coming to money scripts, one of the things that I've found is, of course, you, you said it at the outset, these are unconscious preferences. These are unconscious sort of uh, rote ways of of approaching money. I find that some of my scripts were illuminated when I got married, right? So Mm -hmm. this is a time when this is a time when the the way that I grew up with money came into close contact with another person who grew up differently with different ideas about money. And I mean, it must be said, my wife and I grew up in very similar homes in, in many respects, and still there, there were differences in how we approach money. How do we illuminate these things? If they are indeed unconscious, how can we sort of bring them to the forefront so we can illuminate them and make them easier to work with? So there, there are a couple of things that I think can be really helpful. Uh, one is to kind of be an archaeologist of your own decisions in that like everyone has some boneheaded money decision where they go, why did I do that? What was I thinking? And instead of like using those questions to beat yourself up, actually answer them. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? Um, So I give an an example in the book of, um, this is absolutely true. I have a ridiculous stylized teardrop tattooed on my right shoulder, which I got because uh, in very quick succession, I broke up with a guy who was really not worth my my tears. And then two weeks later, my grandmother, who I really was close to, passed away. And I was annoyed at myself and uh, frustrated with myself for having shed tears over this jabroni who wasn't worth them when, you know, I should have saved them for, for something that really mattered, like losing my grandmother. And so I decided, I was just like, I need to make sure I remember this. I need to remember this, this lesson. I'm going to get a teardrop tattooed on my back. And so I did. I just, I went and and got this tattoo, uh, spent $150, which I couldn't really afford because this was while I was working for $8.25 an hour at uh, Barnes & Noble. And it was less than 15 minutes after leaving the, the tattoo parlor that I went, what have I done? I just put permanent ink on my body. Why did I do that? Uh, and then to make it worse, several months later, I learned that um, a teardrop tattoo in some circles in gangs represents someone you have killed. So <laughs> my tattoo not only is permanent ink on my body, it's also indicating that I whacked my own grandmother. So, <laughs> so not a well thought out plan. And sitting down and actually, instead of like being mad at myself for having done this and being frustrated at myself and kicking myself, saying like, why did I do this? Where did this come from? Where, what were the choices that went into this? And so some of it came from my, my own money scripts in that my, um, family is valuable and you spend money on family is something that, uh, that I very much believed. Um, and so like, 
giving up my grocery budget for a couple of weeks to get a teardrop tattoo in honor of my grandmother was something that showed my love in a way that felt um, really important and poignant to me because it indicated that my needs were less important than my love for my family. And so like recognizing that I could kind of like, okay, you know, like that was not the most rational, straightforward choice I've ever made, but like, I can understand where it came from and it came from a very good place. And I don't need to deny myself and I don't need to get permanent body modification to show my love. I can find other ways to do it. And it doesn't require, um, denying something to myself. So, so that, that sort of thing, you know, like, and it can be easier because at the time I was about 23 when, when this happened at the time, all I knew was that I was embarrassed and felt ashamed of having done this. It took me many years before I could look back on it and, and go like, why did I do this? Where did this come from? And so, you know, think about something and it doesn't have to be a recent one. Think about something that you did that was not a necessarily great financial decision and like really kind of investigate it. Ask yourself, what was I thinking? Where did this come from? Where, what were the emotions that were involved? Um, how did I feel in my body while I was doing it? And all of that can really help you to kind of investigate what your financial beliefs are and why you react the way that you do. Uh, and so I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and then also in the moment, as you're making money decisions, if you find yourself uh, have an impulse, like, well, I have to do this, like stop. Why, <laughs> you know, ask yourself, why do you feel like you have to do this? And so, you know, taking that moment to pause and asking yourself, why do I have to do this? How will that work out for me? <laughs> um, what's going to happen if I do this, how will I feel and doing all of those things that can also help you really investigate what your money beliefs are and help you determine which part of your money beliefs you want to honor and, and, you know, go, go forward with and which parts you'd like to leave behind and let be something from your past. So I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, this Twitter bot, it's a, it's like a New York times Twitter bot that you says every time a new word is used in the New York Times for the first time. So usually it's some sort of slang term or something. So I'm here to tell you that in nearly 200 episodes of standard deviations, that is the first use of jabroni. So <laughs> congratulations, congratulations. You and The Rock would be, uh, <laughs> get along great. So there's, there's a model. It's not my model. And I apologize. I forget the name of the researcher who, who, who set it forth. But in my book, The Behavioral Investor, I talk about a four-part model called the RAIN model. And it's, it's recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-identification. So, so basically, going back to your, uh, I think, excellent suggestion about how we determine our own money scripts. So first of all, we recognize that that some boneheaded decision happened, right? We accept that, yeah, like this isn't, this is non-judgmental, right? Like, yes, it happened. I can accept it. This doesn't mean I'm a boneheaded person, but it was in fact a boneheaded decision. We're gentle enough with ourselves that we, we give ourselves space to check it out. Then there's the investigation process that you've talked about, I think quite nicely. And then there's non-identification saying, I don't have to do this in the future, just because A happens doesn't mean that B happens. I don't have to get a I don't have to get a gang tattoo every time something bad happens in my life. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of breaking that that causal chain. I know that I used to in college 
just spend money anytime I felt sad, right? And it was just this thing, just retail therapy. And heaven knows I didn't have much to spend, but mm-hmm. you know, it's anytime anything went wrong, it's like, okay, it's 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 shopping time. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I without knowing what to call it, basically went through this rain model and and sort of said, look, I don't I don't have to go shopping every time mm-hmm. this happens. Mm-hmm. So it's a great process. Figure out those money scripts, figure out who you are. And I think new people, new situations, and that self-investigation are the, are the ways to, to make that unconscious process more conscious. So last question, maybe the maybe the toughest question. I personally, and, and perhaps I'm projecting this onto you, I I personally write to figure out what I think. You know, a lot of times I'm like, look, I'm kind of on the fence on this. So let me do a deep dive. Let me write about it and figure out where I fall down. So I write to figure out what I think. And and I find that in the process of researching a book, I often change my mind about what may have been a a previously uh, deeply held or cherished assumption. So did you change your mind about anything as you were writing this book with Joe? So I kind of, I grew up really believing in the power of insurance. Um, my, my mom was very much of like, of the idea of like, okay, you, you, you pay for the best possible insurance you can afford. So, and then you just don't worry about it. And I have not completely given up on that, but I, I, my, my view is so much more nuanced now, um, in particular. Uh, so in 2012, my mom got sick. She, she came down with pneumonia that was bad enough. She needed to be put into a medically induced coma. She came out of it and had to go through, um, physical therapy, learn how to like relearn how to eat and walk and a, a whole bunch of different things. Uh, she's doing great now. But that was a really, really tough time. And because of that, and because my mom uh, was a small business owner and did not have disability insurance or long-term care insurance, um, because between being a small business owner and then she had some pre-existing conditions, she never was able to qualify for them, even though she was a big believer in insurance. And so after that, I was like, rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, long-term care insurance. <laughs> I, was, I was like a proselytizer. I would tell everyone, like, look into long-term care insurance, make sure you have uh, adequate disability insurance. Now, I still am like that about disability insurance, um, like because more of us are going to be disabled than when we think is possible. Um, it's one out of every four current 20 year olds will experience uh, a disability event of at least a year uh, before they turn 65. So that's a ridiculously high number. But when it comes to things like long term care insurance, um, I've since learned that uh, the expense of long-term care insurance, the fact that the market is not nearly as settled as like the life insurance market is. Uh, and so things can change a little bit more than, than you might expect. Uh, long-term care insurance is actually only going to be beneficial for about 40% of people. And so between those two things, and then also learning a little bit more about how having a robust emergency fund can help you reduce your coverage on things like um, car insurance and homeowners insurance and, and things like that has kind of changed my view of what insurance is and what it can do. And so kind of writing through all of that and doing the research necessary for, for you know, what we talked about in the insurance um, uh, chapter it helped me get a, a much more nuanced view of insurance rather than, you know, still rah, rah, <laughs> Yeah, no, thank, thank you for that. Well, 
it's a fantastic book. You know, I, I know a lot of advisors listen to my show. I think for advisors who are looking to uh, make finance more accessible, to destigmatize it, to give their clients a resource that doesn't make them feel stupid, uh, I think this is the perfect uh, way to go. So thank you again for being here, for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, about Joe and, and the book, where can they head? So you can find me at my website, emilyguyberkin.com and then forward slash stacked for any information about the um, where you can buy the book. Uh, Joe and I will be on a book tour in the spring. Uh, he'll be doing 42 cities. I'll be on about 14, 14 cities of, of the whole tour. Um, Joe is intense. <laughs> 42 cities is a lot. Uh, so uh, you can find out about that there. You can also go to Joe's website, stackingbenjamins.com and forward slash stacked for information about the book and the tour. Uh, and then you can also always find me on Twitter at Emily Guy Birkin. Uh, I am on Twitter way too much. And uh, I love to say hello there. Uh, 42 cities. That is a nightmare. Please go buy the book. <laughs> So he can stop going around to 42 cities. Oh my goodness. That makes me tired just talking about it. Emily, thank you again. Congrats on the success of the book. And thank you again for all that you've shared with us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.